Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are... The Baker, Baker Street, Street Regulars. Regulars, a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Hi, Sarah. Hello, my name is Sarah Golub. She, her pronouns. And my main thing right now is I talk about Sherlock Holmes on podcasts. That's that's the main thing you have to know about me. <laughs> Welcome to Baker Street Regulars. Uh, we're so excited to have you joining us. You're a friend of a friend, and I'd, I've seen some of your work before, especially the video you co-wrote with H. Bomber guy about BBC Sherlock, which I think we're hoping yes. to cover later in the season. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he he does a great job. He, I, I know I'm involved in that project, but like very sincerely, he fucking goes there. He does a, he, it's so thorough. It's so extremely thorough <laughs> of a takedown of everything about it. It's great. That's so good because there's so um, much to take down. So we're here today to talk about the Granada TV series and two episodes in particular. So Granada Sherlock Holmes, it's Sherlock Holmes produced by Br- British television company Granada Television, hence why it's called Granada Sherlock usually. It was produced between 1984 and 1994. The first two series were actually shown under the title The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and were followed by subsequent series with titles of other short story collections by Arthur Conan Doyle. So like later on, it'd be The Return of Sherlock Holmes or The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes and the final season, The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. The series starred Jeremy Brett, as our titular detective. And then, (laughs) as we will see later on, David Burke started as Dr. Watson from 1984 to 1985. And then from 1986 to 1994 onwards, it was Edward Hardwick. So two different Watsons. Both alike in dignity. (laughs) (laughs) So should we dive right into the Redheaded League, which is the first one we're covering? Yeah, let's get into it. So Redheaded League, just for people to know, was part of the first series, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, and was released on the 22nd of September, 1985. Wow. And boy, does it look like it. (laughs) Well, you thought it was 70s the entire time. Oh, at first, yeah. Some of the haircuts, because the first thing that happens in in this one, well, first thing that I noticed is that the theme song is terrific. I love this piece of music they have for the theme song. But the first thing we see in this episode is the the French gold arriving at the bank or, mm-hmm. or, or boxes being unloaded at the bank from a carriage and a guy with like a Beatles haircut noticing it. And I was like, this guy's hair is so 70s, but he, he maybe he's just a, an outlier. We also hear very cockney noises like, oi, and eh, and ah. <laughs> it's like if Eliza Doolittle was just in the background yelling at a camera. They they definitely have like a real budget. I mean, they've like either built or redecorated a, a you know big chunk of a street or a couple streets. They have a pretty big cast, a lot of dressing, so it looks pretty good and pretty good camera work. I, I have to acknowledge the great camera work that is done, especially in Redheaded League. I was surprised by how many like street scenes they had in this episode because usually they do try to avoid full street scenes unless it's like. A big set piece because you got to just fill the whole, whole street with period appropriate stuff. You got to get rid of any sign of modern life. I feel like it was more street scenes than I usually see on that show. Like usually they'll be like walking through there, but this episode had scenes of just like people arguing at carts. So I was like, oh, that's 
that doesn't need to be there at all. They really took, they really spent the money on that. Yeah. And when we get to the um, second episode, what we're talking about from this TV series, the budget does seem to have taken a dip. A little bit, yeah. So it's interesting to know that this is like an exceptionally pricey episode as opposed to the norm for the first season. There was a scene in the Redhead League where they're like running through the street and to add like verisimilitude to the street, there's like horse clopping. But I had a second where I was like, you're just seeing like Jeremy Brett run and you're hearing horse clopping. And I was like, what is happening? And then I was like, oh, there, there's a carriage. There's a couple times this episode where I noticed the sound design in ways where I thought it was like helping the storytelling in general. Like the clock is chiming. So, you know, it's exactly this time. Or especially when we get down into the bank vault, like the noises of people burrowing below under that increasing as that scene goes on is a really help with attention. I think of that scene. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, and we'll get to this. I kind of forgot how bad the music choices were in devil's foot. So we will get to that. <laughs> I realized that we totally forgot to intro your relationship to the Granada TV <laughs> series. You've seen them all. You've seen them all multiple times. I'm guessing. Actually, no. I, so I've read all the stories multiple times, but the, so some background on the Granada series is that they were filmed over the course of 10 years and over those 10 years, Jeremy Brett's health starts to fail significantly mm. and you can see it in the show. He was very, very committed to keeping the show as accurate as possible to the extent that like there's a story where literally he like flipped a table in a discussion about something being accurate and he would like carry like an annotated copy of the canon with him to set and because like a season one like they wanted to do all these like things and he was like no we got to do this and you just spent a lot of time arguing for it fighting for uh, the accuracy of the canon in the tv series and as he got more sick he just didn't have that energy and so later episodes kind of like really late episodes take weird dips where they're like trying too many things that they just wouldn't get away with in season one because Jeremy doesn't have the energy and he's also like you can you can see that he's not physically well, which is well, kind well, of a bummer if you have this parasocial fondness for him to be like oh that yeah, actor is sick. So I've actually been watching the episodes completely out of order so that it wouldn't be a steady decline because mm-hmm. I thought that would be rough. So I you know. I'll watch a late one and then I'll watch an early one where everything's kind of better to kind of help it. Plus, you know, I'm familiar with whole stories and there is no true accurate order to experience the canon because the Conan Doyle or John Watson, depending on how you read them, doesn't know how dates work. Never seen a calendar in their life. But also just like, you know, they're they're filmed out of order. They filmed the most popular episodes first and then kind of just moved on to whatever else seemed filmable. All of that is to say I have seen Devil's Foot multiple times, but this was actually the first time I'd seen Redheaded League because I was saving that one. <laughs> Terrific. So we'll we'll be able to get your, your first thoughts about it when we get yeah. to the end of the episode. It's interesting you bring up the thing about Jeremy Brett because I was reading a bit about him last night and about his relationship to the role. And it really seems like He'd been an actor and done Shakespeare and everything. And then this role seems to have kind of consumed him. Like, it seems like he became a smoker for this role. And there's all these interviews with him where he talks about, like, whether or not it's possible to do Sherlock Holmes that long and not be consumed by the character and and carry him around. He, like, stopped referring to Sherlock Holmes by name. He'd be like, you know who, when he was talking about Sherlock Holmes in private conversations. And he died a year or two after the final series aired. Yeah. So pretty shortly after. 
yeah, it's it's really tragic. I think he's incredible in the role. Is for many people like kind of this the definitive Sherlock Holmes. And, you know, that's true of every generation. Though lots of people, Basil Rathbone was the definitive one. Lots of people, Benedict Cumberbatch or Johnny Lee Miller or Robert Downey Jr. That's just who they picture. So it goes by generation, but it's such a shame because he, I think he brings so much to the role and that he has this kind of toxic relationship to it when like, honestly, Sherlock Holmes is just a silly little guy. It's like when (laughs) actors talk about how playing the Joker makes them go crazy and you're like, man, they're so committed to the look, but also like, really? Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's a cartoon. That guy? Take a step back. But, you know, art is art. You never really know what's going to get in your head. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, So it's at this point in the episode that we meet Sherlock Holmes. I fell in love with Jeremy Brett's portrayal immediately. Yes. Like in the book, Watson arrives at the door and realizes that Holmes is in the middle of an interview, tries to leave, and and Holmes goes, oh no, just stay, and jumps over a sofa to, to get the door, to get him back in. Yes. It's so terrific. I mean, because the Basil Rathbone Holmes is sort of reserved, mm-hmm. and there's this like, you know, intellectual quiet thing going on. And the Jeremy Brett Holmes is so like excitable and he's like having a good time and he's giggly. And I really like that about he's, this portrayal. He's so theatrical. Yes. I feel like theatrical really is the word for him because he's always he's always playing to this cheap seats. Yes. <laughs> even though it's just him talking to Watson like three feet away from him. Yeah. He will um, yell. I, he will yell in Watson's face about the most trivial thing. I, I stopped and rewound many times the way that he says employee, where he's like, employee. Where you're like, <laughs> God, what a choice. No yeah. one's doing it like him. Yes, yeah. <laughs> word. suddenly do uh, the bravest line reading you've ever seen, but yeah. like yes. in the middle of a sentence. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's really Shatner-esque. He, takes, he pauses in odd places and then he'll pronounce words in a way that nobody pronounces them. At one point he pronounces ennui in a way that confused the, the person who wrote the, <laughs> the captions so badly. Oh, yeah. They just wrote an entirely different word. And then he'll just yell for no reason. He'll just be like, I'm going to say this line loud. <laughs> yeah. That's so great. And what I love about it is like, it feels like in any other performance that would be so weird and unjustifiable. But like, I'm like, no, I feel like that is what Arthur Conan Doyle intended. Like that's just, that is Sherlock Holmes is Sherlock Holmes is so eccentric and charismatic and, you know, is off-putting and draws you in simultaneously. You can't take your eyes off of him. And I feel like that level of just really going for it and making these choices constantly is like just, it feels very true to the spirit of Sherlock Holmes where you're like, oh yeah, that is a guy that one, Watson meets him, one, he'd become like obsessed with, and two, you also understand why he only has the one friend. Because if you just had that guy over like at a party and your your other friends would be like, hey, what's up with him? I asked if he wanted, you know, anything to drink and he did like a three minute model of what's going on. Yeah, I've, I've talked about this before because I'm not as familiar with the Holmes canon. I, I've always said that my feelings on Holmes are like my interpretation of the Holmes character through like osmosis and like cultural relevance is like he's kind of a smart ass who likes to be correct and like doesn't you know take no and just kind of 
does his thing. So it's really nice when reading the stories and even seeing this portrayal of it that no, he's a really fun, silly, goofy guy. Like he 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 enjoys life, he enjoys music, and he's camp. Sherlock yeah. Holmes is camp. <laughs> He's right. so camp. Absolutely. And the first time Holmes and Watson meet in a study in Scarlet, Holmes was doing an experiment and it worked. Mm-hmm. So before he even like introduces himself, he like bows. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> I did it. And he takes a little theatrical <laughs> bow. And I'm like, yeah, that's that is literally our first impression of him. And I don't know where this like I mean, I, I do know, but like the the very serious yeah. buttoned up version of Holmes that's out there is like just not really it's not all he is he's also so camp it's great yeah. <laughs> he's a theater kid well and, and there's a couple uh, absolutely <laughs> moments where I think that shows up as a reflection of the book accuracy of the Granada series because when we read the story it, it describes him as like wriggling into his seat in pleasure about how weird Jabez Wilson's story is. <laughs> and I and like Jeremy Brett, yes, can do that. Basil Rathbone, I was like, I don't know if I can picture him wriggling into his seat in pleasure. <laughs> you know, that doesn't seem like something he would do. So at this point in the story, we do meet Jabez Wilson, who is the client who has come with the story of the Redheaded League. Silly hair. Who has silly hair, which I like as a character detail. I think the Granada series also does this thing that I appreciate where they've added details to the story that help it make yeah. even more sense. Than in Conan's, like we don't know what Jabez Wilson's hair looks like, but the fact that he is like balding and has this like stringy, gross hair comb over, yeah, comb over <clears throat> that later when Duncan Ross is like a perfect head of hair, you like you kind of like okay, yes, we get we get that something is a freak. <laughs> I think the comb over is so telling about the pride he has in it. Yeah, well, like we won't admit that he's going bald. And so, of course, he falls for somebody telling him he has perfect hair because that's the little delusion that he needs right yeah. now. They also do an adaptation of uh, Redheaded League in the 1950s half-hour Sherlock Holmes, which is interesting because, like, watching the Granada version, I definitely felt how much they were padding it. Yes. And I think that it's telling that, like, oh, okay, yeah, they cut stuff for the half-hour version, but it really it gets all the beats in a lot faster. This is... This is not an hour long story. This is a this is a sitcom length story, but it's because I'd seen a black and white version. I was kind of prepared to be like disappointed by the red hair, and when I saw Jabez Wilson, I was like, "That's not the reddest hair in the world." But I will give I'll give Granada credit when he's walking through the redheaded league auditions. They make sure to surround him with guys who have less red hair. He actually does stand <laughs> out at the auditions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the first time in our exploration, because it's pretty early, that we've actually gotten like a uh, flashback where like Javis Wilson is telling the story and then we like flash to like visuals of it happening, which is like a little thing. And we later we get this when Sherlock is explaining deductions where we flashback visually to something and i like that as a bit of visual storytelling mm-hmm. that we haven't had so far it's nice to see like a trope that I, has become so associated with mystery stories finally show up in our exploration of the Holmes canon and yeah it definitely adds especially adds to the padding of the episode because realistically if you tried like if you did this episode like the the short story it would be half an hour so it was it was really cool the first half to see the padding of adding of the story and like seeing like Jabez, you know, going and 
doing his little uh, Encyclopedia Britannica A's and <laughs> even seeing the reaction of Watson and Holmes to this story was really funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, there are so many like shared looks between them. They, they definitely have a like like an understanding between them. Mm-hmm. That there's a nice like intimacy of thought, at least. Yes. Going on between our Holmes and Watson here. Having seen more of the Granada episodes than we have, how many of them feel like they are padded for time? I mean, I guess I'd say they're all a little padded for time because they usually are around 51 minutes. And then the really padded ones are uh, in the late series. They start doing like movies, Mm -hmm. but they adapt the novels Hound of the Baskerville and The Sign of Four. So those are novels adapted into movie-length episodes, but then they have a few movie-length episodes that are not. And besides The Master Blackmailer, which is an adaptation of Charles Augustus Milverton, mm. where I think that they add very interesting context, usually the longer episodes are a huge drag. I think Redheaded League has a lot more padding than usual, though, because they want to introduce Moriarty before the final problem. Because it's a TV series and they're like, we can't just in the last episode be like, by the way, because Doyle only did that because he was done writing Sherlock Holmes. He didn't want to do it anymore. And also Doyle was trying to make them as standalone as possible because he thought it was kind of silly that, you know, you wouldn't be able to know what was going on if you missed the last issue. He was trying to avoid that intentionally. So it makes sense that he didn't bother building up to the Moriarty thing. Because he was like, I don't care about that. It makes sense that a TV show would do that. But it definitely is a completely new subplot added to the episode. And usually they don't do entirely new subplots to episodes. Usually they just, you know, when they add something, it'll be a continuation of something that was already in the series. Here in the Redheaded League, the Moriarty thing could be tagged onto literally any case I don't. E- I really don't like that this is a case that was masterminded by Moriarty because it's like not a good plan. It's one of those plans where it's like this is just crazy enough to work. I personally found this dumb guy, and I think this plan will work, and it almost does. And like, like I think that that's what's brilliant about it is that like it's so dumb on paper, but it Sherlock Holmes hadn't found it, they absolutely would have gotten away with all that gold. Yeah, saying that like a mastermind thought of we are just going to tell this guy about a fake club and then hope he doesn't notice we're building a tunnel in his basement. Terrible plan for Moriarty. I'll yeah. say I I don't like that at all. It's If you want me to believe that Moriarty's a genius, what a weird plan that he's coming up with this very whimsical, silly little thing, scheme. <laughs> right, right. There are probably more effective ways to get the to get to the French gold. Honestly, like just kill Jabez Wilson and like close the store. Like I don't. Right. Why is Moriarty being so fucking coy about this? Knock him out. I don't know, hit him <laughs> over the hat. Like what? Who's well, gonna and notice. So in the Arthur Conan Doyle story, we get this thing where once Sherlock has begun to realize what's going on, he says that the uh, perpetrator John Clay, who's posing as the assistant at Jabez Wilson's thrift store, furniture, whatever, flea store. Yeah, it's a thrift store yeah. of sorts. Yeah, good store. Yeah, good basically, <laughs> is the third most cunning man in England, which is again odd. But also the the change has been made that when I'm reading the story, the impression I get is that Jabez Wilson's shop butts up against the back of the bank. Yeah, and that like 
like it's part of the same block and that if you go around to the other end of the block you see the bank and that's why it makes sense to dig a tunnel under Jabez Wilson's store whereas the plan that Moriarty supposedly has masterminded which includes placing John Clay it was like sewer tunnels right right. or something it's (laughs) it's like it's not the same block it's like across the street and then like a turn and then like like you see a map at one point that Hardy has drawn and it's like it's convoluted like there are businesses that are much closer to this bank that would make more sense for the like trip yeah and like you really can't travel through sewers they're, one because they're small right yeah no if you were to tunnel a hole into a sewer you would just flood immediately like that would right even if there was so room... many new problems <laughs> right even if there was room to walk there'd be so much methane gas you wouldn't be able to breathe yeah so... tunnel in like a full gas mask <laughs> <laughs> i mean like diving suits that look so great you just yes. should have come yes. out in that that would have looked amazing yes <laughs> I was hoping when they introduced the idea that it was going to be like they were tapping into the sewers somehow and then using those to travel. I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to get like a sewer set. We're going to see the interior of what they think a Victorian sewer looks like. And I was excited for that. But we don't we don't get that. It's one of the changes I don't understand in this episode. And I wonder if it has to do with just like the streets they could get to film in that the Jabez Wilson's store is not the opposite of the same block of where the bank is but we never see a wide enough shot that really makes it clear where they are in relation to each other yeah that that might be a good point i do imagine that you know when you're looking for sets you have a finite amount of places that look like they are from the 1880s but you're right that there's just no way i as an audience member would be like no way that's behind the bank (laughs) (laughs) the the other thing that that I have a problem with, with Moriarty being the mastermind behind this, is that it turns him <laughs> into like this big mob boss of London. Like he's responsible for all the crimes in London. But I think that is the implication <laughs> about Moriarty that we get in the final problem, that he is like a mob boss who's just like, has his finger in all the pies and is like involved in a lot of schemes. Yeah, but he was never involved with this one. But I think that the description we get of John Clay is so like Moriarty-esque, like that he's this criminal that we've been unable to track down forever despite his distinctive appearance and that he's like one of the smartest men that we've ever gone up against. Like there is this raising of stakes in the Doyle short story that I think matches Moriarty, even though- He's diet Moriarty. Right, it feels that way. Yeah, and I also, that's also one of the things that I don't love about Moriarty being part of the scheme is that I think that John Clay is such a cool villain in itself. And honestly, the um, Sherlock Holmes rogues gallery is a bit lacking. Like a lot of the criminals are just really mean or really dumb. And that's their thing. Like they're Mm -hmm. just an awful person or they're bad at murder. And that's how they get caught. And that's, I think, part of why adaptations always go to the well of Moriarty or Irene Adler even though she's not even a villain is because a lot of the villains don't really stand out much and so I think that it's a real shame that John Clay who is one of the few like he has a distinctive scar he has this very wacky scheme he came up with we learn that you know he has a partner that he's apparently you know you never see them interact but apparently he's very loyal to him because he's like well, you caught me, but at least Archie got away, which is interesting. I'd like to have seen that get a subplot instead. And yeah, he gets the distinction of being like the third cleverest schemer in London. 
And then they're like, oh, but he only got away with that because of some other guy. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, it was just, just Moriarty. Just Moriarty. <laughs> it's always Moriarty. So are you disappointed by the way that Moriarty gets used by the Granada series? Uh, yes. And um, I think it's, I had mentioned, I, I suggested Devil's Foot as the second episode because I have a lot of fondness for that short story. And it's interesting because... Moriarty in the books never appears in Redheaded League or The Devil's Foot. And accidentally, we kind of did a little marathon of like the episodes Granada adds Moriarty into. Oh, so Moriarty is um, in most of the episodes in the first season then. Right. I'm trying to remember if he's mentioned in Norwood Builder at the very end, but I think it really is just Redheaded League and Final Problem. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm I'm really just trying to remember the order for that, but this is the only one in which he like would, he has like scenes besides final problem. Yeah, I do want to say it is really nice to see a smart Watson. Oh yeah, I mean we just did the Basil Rathbone Nigel Bruce thing. <laughs> it's so nice to see, and also that this is like partially adaptational. Like they've added moments beyond what what the short story has, where Watson is like making deductions, where Watson is being clever about things where he's adding things to the conversation and it's like it's so nice to see finally competent watson i love this yeah. watson actually this is david burke right yes i really loved david burke. oh yeah yeah i love david burke yeah yeah <laughs> yeah he, there's a slyness there which i appreciate and he's like seems like he's having a good time he's having such a good time especially this episode yeah where he and holmes get to actually like laugh together and there's the great scene where Holmes is like, okay, enough of this case. Let's go to concert. And they're both like, oh my God, I'm going to go to a concert. And we're going to have the best time. Oh, Bessie's hanging out. It's so great. They're, which, they're the cutest. Which always <laughs> happens, which happens all the time in the stories that they like go to go to see music when there's no case stuff to do for the rest of the day. But I love that we like see it. And we like, I mean, part of it's the padding maybe, but like we get this concert hall scene where, it seems like they didn't have enough extras. There's a certain amount of like <laughs> tight shots of like groups of people. And then like, we never see the whole room at once. And I'm just like, did they just like make them all change clothes and then go into a different part of the room and then film again? But David Burke has oh, this I... monologue, which is from the text where he has this like reverence for, for Holmes and his like, he describes him as having dreamy eyes. And that's a little gay. And, and it's, it's just like a nice quiet moment before the caper unfolds. I love that concert hall scene because, it, yeah, it it seems like a mistake that it's empty, but I do think that there is something to the fact that, like, you know, it's like a close-up on Holmes having an out-of-body experience, and then you pull back, and you're like, no one even wanted to see this show. Like, there are, like, five people who are like, fine, I'll see violin, and then you cut yeah. to Holmes having the time of his life. <laughs> He's loving it. No one else, It's it's like, you know, a concert where there's like one guy cheering and trying to start a mosh pit and everyone else is like, this is fine. <laughs> yeah. In one of the books, I remember Watson describes uh, Sherlock as having the crudest ideas about art, which I think is very fun. He's just a supporter. He, yes. he knows nothing about it. He's just like, they are playing that violin or whatever. Not, not relevant to the ones we're watching, but he says that in an early chapter of Hound of the Baskervilles. And it's great because then when the late chapters of Hound of the Baskervilles. Holmes to another person is like, 
my friend Watson will say that I don't have good opinions about art, but it's because actually he doesn't have the same eye that I do. And it's just like they're yeah. dragging other people into this argument of theirs, which yeah. I love. <laughs> so we get down into the bank vault. They've made an interesting choice in terms of filming location because it looks like a spa. It does. Yeah. And then we finally get the explanation about the French gold. My favorite part of this is that they're like questioning Meriwether, the bank director, about the French gold. And he finally explains, he's like, well, we got this gold. And they're like, well, where is it? And he's like, it's, it's that, that crate that Watson's sitting on. And the crate is labeled like the Banque de France. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I think I think Sherlock would have noticed that. He just wanted him to say it. It's like, see the gold and they just take the lid off. There's like no security protocols yeah. whatsoever. I think we see Holmes steal some. He like picks up a coin to inspect. I don't think he puts it back. <laughs> well, also like, unlike in the book, it seems like Holmes has put all the pieces together much earlier in the story because in the book, he like he like goes out to the street and he like observes the knees of John Clay and he's like, oh, he's been digging and he like walks around and he's like, oh, the bank is there. Like we get step by step. But at the beginning of this story, yeah. when David Wilson is like, I'm not sure I can pay you. He's like, I think someone else is going to pay me. Like he already knows there's a bank involved and he's going <laughs> to gonna get money out of them. Well, as soon as like Jabez describes his assistant, he's like, oh. I figured it out. Yeah. We're good. This, this is a this is the bank heist of the century. This is all just for yeah. me. <laughs> and I, you know, I I do have respect for the fact that he heard that somebody was being paid half wages, and he's like, oh, okay, so you're being currently robbed right now. Well, Sherlock I, Holmes says, pay your workers a fair wage, otherwise you get what's coming to you. Exactly. That. <laughs> like that's that's the, how the story ends. He like goes back to Jabez Wilson in a scene that is not in the book, and he gives him some money. I don't know why. And for his trouble, well, because his shop has been trashed, I guess. And I, I did lose a bunch of stuff in his shop. <laughs> right. And he's like, well, pay your workers. That's the, that's the moral yeah. of this story. <laughs> that's a good moral. Something I thought was an odd adaptation change. And it's not like they never do this in adaptations or even like, yeah, I guess adaptations. They can't do it in the stories because obviously the stories are from Watson's first person point of view. But they tell you right away that it's about a bank robbery which mm-hmm. is fascinating in the Granada version because in the story you're reading it and you're like, oh, okay, I'm, you know, I'm Watson and I'm visiting Holmes. I wonder what Holmes is going on. Oh, Holmes has a client. Oh, here's an interesting story. Okay, we're now at a concert. And then like, you know, the reader finds out the same time as Watson that it's about a bank heist when they go into a bank. Yes. That is the first you hear about it, reading the story. And this time you see that it's about a bank robbery before you even see Sherlock Holmes, yeah. which is, yeah. I thought, an interesting choice. <laughs> One thing that I've been thinking about, the guest we had on the episode before last, said that every Sherlock Holmes story involves some piece of information that Sherlock Holmes has that the audience doesn't. And it's interesting in this case to have that gap bridged. <laughs> and to start off with more information than both Sherlock Holmes and Watson do. Like, that is a first in these adaptations for us as well. And I'm not sure if I enjoy it or not. Mm. I, I haven't I haven't decided yet. Yeah. If I would prefer if we are like kept in the dark or if I like knowing everything. Well, and in a way, Devil's Foot does the same thing where we see something that Sherlock and Watson couldn't have seen at the very beginning of the story that helps contextualize what happens mm. later. I wanted to bring up that they have this conversation while they're sitting in the bank vault about John Clay and they're like this isn't John Clay's style someone named Moriarty must be behind this 
And they say this kind of messed up thing about Moriarty, which is that he has a hereditary tendency towards crime. Yeah, that's from the books. A thing about Sherlock Holmes is that he absolutely would believe in phonology. <laughs> it's rough out there. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes has the weirdest ideas of how like biology or basic medicine stuff works. He's like, you know how cocaine relaxes you and you're just born evil? These are facts of science. And then Watson sitting there being like, I have a medical degree and please don't listen. Well, it's like in the books or one of the stories where he's like, he doesn't believe the earth revolves around the sun. Right. Yeah. That's like the first thing we learned about him. So it's like, it makes sense that he's like, if you're evil, you're evil. You were born evil. Yeah. It's kind of a eugenicist understanding of how evil works, though, which I don't love. No. Yeah. It's it's bad that Sherlock Holmes legitimately has like a eugenics view of crime he's like you know just something will happen in your family tree and then you're born a criminal and it's like okay one makes no fucking sense at all (laughs) and two you commit crimes all the time you're not a bad person like you also believe that people can commit crimes for good reasons or be a bad person but be within the bounds of the law and then it'll simultaneously be like, oh, but, you know, something happened and now Sebastian Brand's a criminal. There you go. That's just how families work genetically. Yeah. It's If you do something so bad, it's weird. because you're evil and you can never be not evil. Yeah. It, he thinks it's like a recessive trait where it's like, you know, it might show up in your 30s. You just suddenly do crime now. And right. Unless it's, it's um, righteous revenge, which Sherlock Holmes gets to decide. And then it's exactly hot. like it's yeah. it's not even that he minds when people do. crime. I, yeah, I really don't like that aspect of the stories, but it helps that Sherlock Holmes also is wrong about literally every other aspect of how medicine or human bodies work because he thinks that sleeping is bad for you and eating makes you think worse even though i don't know if you've ever tried to make decisions hungry it's the opposite and spoiler for a future story there is fully one where the the resolution is that the guy acting weird has been injecting himself with the monkey hormones and so it's been making him climb buildings once a month like some sort of a werewolf and sherlock holmes has this whole speech about like and in the future Everyone will be doing that. What story is that? Uh, That's called The Creeping Man. It's so great. Holmes and Watson are in a fight. That story that is not elaborated on. So it's just a story where you're reading it and you're like, for some reason, the narrator is mad at the protagonist. We never find out why. (laughs) Not the boyfriend's fighting. I often feel like Uh, Arthur Doyle is projecting his displeasure at having to write more Sherlock Holmes stories onto Watson's feelings about Sherlock. <laughs> like, I'm mad at this guy. It's like this again. I love it though, because it it really lets you feel like, yeah, they are they are boyfriends. And so sometimes it's like Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> the greatest man in the world, or it'll be like, I am the most long suffering of mortals having to interact with this fucking piece of shit. Yeah, it'll be like Sherlock Holmes is the most inseparable person I've ever met. Anyway, we were walking together after a dinner out where you're like oh come on so speaking of like sweet little intimacies between them and just rushing to the end of this episode there's this (laughs) lovely moment where sherlock lights watson's cigarette at the very end right before they like walk off which is like which has long been a gay code for 
for for discreet gay men and i'd like i just it's yeah. very it's a very intimate lovely gesture um and then we also get this like moriarty is like annoyed to have his plans foiled and we like see him like literally on the same street as them just watching them and that's the end of the episode mm -hmm. yeah and then to add on to the cigarette lighting is that before he does that you see um this isn't going to work in audio but sherlock holmes is holding the cigarette case and he's tapping it against his lips and then when Watson comes back, he hands the cigarette case to Watson and Watson takes out that cigarette that he lights. So it's very, they're very clear about it yeah. being a kiss. If you are looking for signs of gay subtext, they are there. And yeah. Jeremy Brett was also, he was bisexual and he had bipolar disorder. And I think that that is, in my opinion, a huge factor in his understanding of Sherlock Holmes, who I definitely read as a neurodivergent queer man and i think that how could you not jeremy brett being a neurodivergent queer man was better able to tap into those parts of sherlock holmes that you know i have a lot of affection for the basil rathbone version but like there are aspects of holmes that i feel are missing there that perhaps basil rathbone just wasn't able to really connect with the same <laughs> it's too straight too straight <laughs> I don't actually know that about him. He might have gone, I don't know, he got after. That's <laughs> true. It was the 30s. Is Jeremy Brett the only openly queer actor to ever play Sherlock Holmes in a major adaptation? Ian McKellen, but they never give Ian McKellen any scenes with his Watson. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's disappointing. We do want to watch that. Movie. That's a good point. Probably the other, more, but none come to mind. <laughs> the other thing that I'd heard about this series is that despite the Granada series being like very stringently accurate to the books or one of the most accurate uh, adaptations of the books of the short stories they never introduce watson's wife mary yeah no watson never has a wife in this series so when they do a sign of four they do it really late in the series sign of four is the novel in which mary morrison is introduced and she and watson fall in love and get engaged within the span of that novel which is funny because it takes place over like three days so you're like, how hot is Watson to have pulled that off in three days? But <laughs> neither here nor there. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised how late they put it because they have kind of um, an age accurate Mary. And then they have Edward Hardwick, who, you know, looks good for his age, but definitely looks like an older gentleman. Uh, but I will say when I watched uh, Sign of Four, there's like a scene where he and Mary say goodbye. And I was like, Oh, he could absolutely, like, she is giving him the green light in this scene. <laughs> Good for her. They they still have the chemistry in the, in my opinion, as an aromantic asexual. So maybe, you know, you can't really trust me on this, but I feel like she was giving him the eyes. To your point, I, I really love that about the Granada series that Watson isn't married because they're completely right. It fits in the way. You can tell also that Doyle regretted Oh, okay. I won't regret it as me kind of implying like a point of view on him that I don't know about. But you can tell when you read the stories that Doyle did not realize how inconvenient marrying Watson in the second novel before he wrote the rest of the stories was going to be because he's always getting Watson back into that apartment. He's always having stories take place before the marriages. And then there's like in um the five orange pips. The introduction, Watson is like, my wife Mary was on vacation for two weeks, so I moved back into Baker Street for that time. And you're just sitting there being like, 
one, she's taking a vacation without you. And two, so you moved? Like that's, <laughs> you need a sitter? That's hilarious. They are so codependent. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. As an asexual person, do you subscribe to the feeling yeah. some people have that Sherlock is somewhere on that spectrum? I don't. And I know lots of asexuals who do subscribe to that. I know it's a very popular reading. I see the I see the textual basis for it. My thing is, and obviously this is extremely like subjective and biased. I actually, similar to Sherlock Holmes, I have been living with my roommate for like seven, eight years. I love him dearly. I take a bullet for him do anything for him he's moving in with his girlfriend I don't feel like I'm going to take up cocaine about that that's not how I feel in that situation (laughs) I feel like the way Holmes reacts to Watson is not the way that I feel about the friends whom I love very dearly I feel like he's taking it to a different level where it's very personal to him Holmes thinks of Watson as his in a way that is not accurate to my experience as an asexual aromantic, as mm. I don't feel like people are mine. And I don't know if that is specifically romantic, but it definitely is not part of my experience. Mm. So my guess is it's part of a different experience. And that's where I'm coming from, because he literally says my Watson in the final problem. He still refers to Baker Street as our rooms. Years after Watson moved out, the way he acts about Watson is that in his mind they are married then that's that's true throughout the series and not to mention of course that Watson is obviously extremely enamored with Holmes and Holmes's hands especially I never talk about my friend's hands that much I'm never (laughs) caught being like oh you know my good friend with the long sensitive fingers that feels again not like an asexual experience to me yeah that's where I'm coming from on that. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes may be asexual. He may be a gay man. He may be, you know, demi-romantic. He may be on the ace end spectrum and, and a gay man simultaneously. There's not a contradiction there. But he's not straight. If you write an adaptation where Sherlock Holmes is attracted to women, you are making something up. You are adding it to the canon. That is an original contribution from you. It is not in the books There is nothing in the books where he expresses sexual or romantic interest in a woman. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I cannot stress this enough. (laughs) I'm not putting him in any box. I'm just saying that straight people, you are making it up if you think that he's attracted to women. You cannot point to a single line of the canon. Where he says, closest there is, is that when he's like in retirement, he's talks about a girl that other guys are in love with and he's like i'm not interested in women but i see why they're interested in her which i feel is different i think a lot of people do this thing where they bend over backwards (laughs) to try to make irene adler into this like this lost crush that he has and and i I agree that's not textable yeah yeah what's great about that is when he's describing irene adler he says that she has a face that a man might die for and he says She's very beautiful, according to the other men in the neighborhood. But then when he talks about her husband, Godfrey Norton, he's like, oh, Godfrey Norton, he's so handsome. And you're like, okay, so suddenly the qualifiers are gone. Okay, (laughs) cool. I just think it's interesting when Sherlock Holmes uses qualifiers and when he doesn't, he uses qualifiers for women. He doesn't use them for men. He Mm. says men are handsome all the time. This gets into the question about like, 
Arthur Conan Doyle's intent. Do you think his intent matters? Do you think he was intentionally trying to do queer representation of a sort from the Victorian era, or is it like an oops all gays? Yeah, my impression of Arthur Conan Doyle, and this largely comes from, I read a book of his, the Stuck Monroe Letters, which are, it's a fictional story that's based off of his real experience, so it's semi-autobiographical, and it's about a character based on him having this really toxic, confusing friendship with a charismatic genius who is very Sherlock Holmes-coded. My impression based off of that and other things I know about Arthur Conan Doyle is that he is bisexual, but he sincerely, very thoroughly believed that that is actually how everyone feels about their guy friends. That's my impression of it, that he, Hmm. my vibe on him, and this is just, you know, obviously I haven't spoken to him. I think he really did think everyone feels that way about their guy friends and that he wasn't attracted to men because he was attracted to women. And then that, you know, well, everyone has friendships like this, right? Where you follow a guy to a different town, a different city, you give up everything. And then he's really confusing. And then he's doing naked weightlifting in your room. And you don't really know what's supposed to happen there. And then you're both weird and confused about it afterwards. That's how everyone feels all the time. That's from the book. Wow. That's a lot of homoerotic so subtext. Yeah. And you know what? Maybe he made that up about his friend or maybe it really happened. But I feel like either way, something was happening there and he's just never examined it and he has no intention of examining it. And I think that that's why he's so good at writing the most iconic queer bait of all time is that he himself just has no idea what happens next after two guys are in a room together. (laughs) I love that. Just manly things. Just manly things. Yeah. I feel like he could have written straighter or gayer if he had actually been with a man ever. And I feel like that sweet spot comes from him not having actually done anything, but that is purely speculation on my part. (laughs) Right. This is one of the great pieces of art born out of repression. Exactly. Exactly. If he was too aware of the fact that he was repressed, you would feel that there'd be like a disgust there. Watson's the least self-aware person. (laughs) Narrator-wise, I don't think there's ever been a less self-aware narrator. He invented narrating something and having no idea what was happening simultaneously. <laughs> and it it goddamn works. You need that for the mysteries, right? He sees all of the clues and then he's like, oh, I wonder why that bed's bolted to the floor. Not for me to think about. <laughs> right. Someone smarter will come explain this to me. Devil's Foot starts with us seeing something that Sherlock and Watson do not see, which is a gloved hand breaking a window and stealing a bottle of powder from a shelf with other bottles and vials on it. And then we cut to Holmes and Watson arriving in, I don't even know where this is. Where's this town? Uh, it's Cornwall. Like Cornwall. Cornwall. The nice Cornish countryside. And you talked about having a story where Holmes and Watson are kind of having a fight and we don't really like get all the details. This is kind of that story too, actually. Yes. Because we have our new Watson. We have our new Watson 
Edward Hardwick. We hadn't done a lot of research before watching it, and we were like, wait a second, that's a different guy. <laughs> Definitely a little bit older yeah. than good old David Burke. And this is also when we started noticing that Jeremy Brett was a little bit older as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, because I knew that they'd made four seasons, but I didn't realize that they made four seasons over 10 years. Yeah, Devil's Foot came out three years later than uh-huh. Redheaded League. Yeah. And Edward Hardwick is actually just one year, one or two years. He's 1932. I think David Burke was 1933 or 1934. Mm-hmm. But he's not actually much older than David Burke. David Burke just looks insanely young for a 50-year-old. <laughs> right. And he's I 50 was... in Redhead League. He's just, he looks great. <laughs> Good genes. Wow. And I was worried yeah. at first because the dynamic between David Burke and Jeremy Brett is so fun that I was worried that the dynamic would be gone with like an older Watson. And and that it, it, I think instead the dynamic has shifted. They kind of have an old married couple thing going on now where yeah. like it's clearly they love each other, but they're also mad at each other. I wasn't gonna lie. I was a little worried with the new Watson that we were going to go back to the bumbling Nigel Bruce. Right. And I was pleasantly surprised that we got Kind of a continuation of David Burke, but just like older. And now they've been married for 50 years and they're just mad at each other all the time, but they still love each other. Yeah. This episode is interesting because they seem to have added this like very subtle subplot. Is that fair to say? Yes. And this is, it's somewhat taken from another story, but I, I'd like to hear how you guys thought it played just from watching it and and reading the story as well originally. Yeah, it was it was interesting coming into this one and seeing that they added you know the whole trying for Sherlock to get over his addiction cuz if my memory serves me correctly in the short stories he's just been very sick, you know. There there really wasn't like any as to why why he was feeling sick other than he's just been feeling very unwell for a long time Uh, whereas with this we get the added extra of like he is unwell and he's going through withdrawals or no he's he's unwell and he's still doing a lot of drugs and then like he has begins to like be concerned about death or his own death maybe and then like for the rest of the episode is going through withdrawals i think he's unwell from drug use at the beginning mm. and then unwell from withdrawals for the rest of the episode mm. and we get this odd like there's this fixation on these like prehistoric stones which feels very baskerville which symbolize death somehow and that comes back to him later when he's tripping which spoiler alert he does <laughs> but it's one of those things where like like in terms of storytelling i expected there to be some payoff because we get this idea about like the stones and death and then we get like there's there's three beats there's an early thing where watson is like death is always with us and holmes like becomes very thoughtful and then he like gets rid of the syringe and the i guess it's cocaine and then later when he's tripping he like sees the stones again and there's imagery of the time that he should have died from the from falling off of the Reckenbach and he sees Moriarty and he sees Moriarty and then that's it and like I was sort of expecting him to have some conversation with Watson about like a change in direction for his life or something like it feels like it's leading somewhere and then it doesn't it just kind of stops Hmm. like jumping to the middle of the story the end of the that arc seems to be his recklessness about endangering Watson's life and then realizing he was wrong and apologizing for it yeah which that was sweet yeah so yeah in a similar to adding Moriarty into the Red Hat League 
Granada did like kind of a, a mini arc about Holmes's drug use. So Musgrave Ritual, the episode that we almost watched, Holmes uses his drugs a lot in that episode in a way that's not part of the original story because the original story is mostly told in flashback. So, you know, maybe Holmes was high that whole time in in the original case, but he was leaving that out of the still potion he told Watson. <laughs> so they they added it into a previous episode as well to sort of create this arc. I believe that Jeremy Brett had wanted them to uh, directly have Sherlock Holmes quit the drugs in the show in like an unambiguous manner because he was very conscious of the fact that you know young people were watching the show and looked up to Sherlock Holmes and he wanted to like let's acknowledge that he quits the drugs so in the stories in a short story called The Adventure of the Missing Three Quarter Watson talks about how over a long period of time he as a medical doctor helped wean Holmes off of the drugs and that bit is always that's really important to me because of the timeline of that story with he's he's like over the last few years I I've helped wean Holmes off of you know those terrible drugs it lines up with Holmes starting that process with Watson pretty much when he returns from the dead which hmm. I feel like adds a very important level of context to one. Watson moves out in a sign of four after confronting Holmes about his drug use and Holmes not backing down. So like that's set up as a big reason why Watson moves out and orig- originally. And so I like the implication that you can read into it that ha- Watson only agrees to move back in if Holmes agrees to go off of the drugs mm-hmm. or even that Holmes is like, please move back in so that you can help me do this. So I really like that about the books, but Missing Three Quarter, not a great story. It would be really hard to adapt it in a cinematic way. Like it's not a bad story. It's just, it doesn't really have a mystery. And then the resolution is a huge bummer. So it's like really not cinematic. So obviously they're not going to put it in Granada. They're not going to make a whole episode out of that because they'd have to basically invent like 12 subplots out of nothing so I'm really glad that they put it into an episode that was going to get filmed (laughs) right what I also appreciated about this episode compared to Redheaded League is even with the addition of this like sort of subplot it didn't feel like padding or even if it was padding it was like the the appropriate amount of padding for this story. Because Devil's Foot, I would say, is probably a little bit longer than Redheaded League to begin with. Because there's just so much uh, within the plot that you can do with it. So it was it was really, really nice to watch this episode and feel like every single plot point and every single beat was purposeful and for this episode and actually fit in this episode. Well, and there's something here that that we're seeing for the first time and that I think we'll see in later adaptations as well, which is the idea of Sherlock Holmes as like a complicated three-dimensional person. Mm. Like, because the version of him that we get in the books, I think it can be a little cartoonish, although it sounds like there is a there is a more complex arc there in the totality of the books and short stories. You have to really look for it, though. I'll say that. Like, you, mm. scholarship has to dig deep because... 
yeah, if you read one short story, you're like, good little guy. Like it it can have that very surface level getting to it. And I I don't think Doyle was setting out to write, you know, the prototype of all anti-hero protagonists. Like I don't I think that that's something that, you know, you do have to dig for. <laughs> but the, 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 I think that that thing makes this story, this adaptation of this story feel so much more modern is that it's like, this is a guy with like issues and like issues that affect his relationships. And he's working through something in real time as he's solving the murder. Like that is so much more noir somehow than it is like Ar- Arthur Conan Doyle's version of the story. Mm-hmm. I Yeah, I'm very curious to see how much of that we're going to get in later adaptations I, I think we're definitely going to get like yeah I think there'll be some where it's like wow he really has like man pain and there'll be some where it's like nope he's just a guy <laughs> he's just a guy who solves crimes or we're like oh there's that asshole Sherlock that we come to know or think about when we think of Sherlock that's true while we're on the drug thing really briefly I just need to highlight the fact that he buries his syringe on the beach in so shallow it's like an inch of sand covering it and he's like to find that in five minutes right yeah some child mommy mommy look i found a syringe <laughs> mommy look yeah um, worst spot possible middle of the beach the tides but you're gonna see a crab crab walking with it in one cloth <laughs> that should have been like the out final image of the episode is just a crab carrying it away. <laughs> or there's going to be a really high fish somewhere. Uh, yes. Yeah. Later, when he's mad about endangering his life in Watson so stupidly, he throws the lamp off of the cliff. <laughs> I'm like, he could have thrown the syringe off a cliff, you know? No, he didn't want to hit that lady painting at the bottom of the cliff. Oh, what was that? There's There's this one cutaway to a lady painting. And it's like, wow, finally more females in Sherlock Holmes stories. And then it's like, no, actually, she's not. She was just scene setting, I guess. We never yeah, see her again. Just she's just there. Yeah. This story does have two women who interact briefly, but I don't think it's a Bechdel pass. Yeah. <laughs> Someday we'll get one. We'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. It's look, the stories aren't really for that. What helps me with that aspect of the stories is that Holmes is always like, but women should be able to do whatever crimes they want. That's fine. <laughs> feminist yeah it's women don't appear in the Sherlock Holmes short stories because Holmes doesn't prosecute them for crimes and for me I'll take that (laughs) I love that well woman does a crime it's none of my business I'll say that much (laughs) this episode has an interesting depiction of crazy people yeah I forgot how I admittedly like it's not inaccurate to the books there is just something about like reading about madness and then actually seeing like a completely sane actor do an impression of madness that is a very different vibe yeah (laughs) yes why was he foaming out of the mouth right right it's it's played in these big close-ups for shock value but what has happened is that there's been a moita and sherlock has gone to investigate and the to the two brothers of the family that have been affected have gone mad and the sister the sister is dead she dead dead watson doesn't want him to take the case right which is i think a change from this from the short story no watson's a little bit kind of always like he's resting <laughs> right because he's supposed to be taking in the sea air and and recovering yeah the, the short story actually has a great 
line about that. But basically that Watson fully glares at the vicar when the vicar shows up with a case, which is so funny to just be like, this motherfucking vicar ruining my vacation. And it's like murder. Right. Also, like, I feel like being vicar is just the prototypical, like, harmless man job. (laughs) Yeah. Not that real vicars aren't bad, but I feel like in, you know, mystery stories like the local cornish vicar is like the least intimidating person possible and watson's like get the fuck out of here <laughs> yeah totally although there's this nice moment because watson like starts asking questions about the case and sherlock gives him this like nice approving look like i have this like moment that i really like yeah that, yeah that's definitely different from the book watson kind of becomes intrigued by it whereas in the book he's just like no, we're not doing this. Get out. Stop this. No. We also get a great moment of Watson's medical expertise paying off. Finally. Finally. Yes. Uh, in the books, he's the most useless doctor in the world. I love him. <laughs> where the 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 estranged brother of the family that has died, Treganus, mentions he has a blood disorder. And Watson is like, he's lying about the blood disorder. And we're like, oh. Cool. Yeah, it's absolutely not. <laughs> Okay, wait, I found this quote where the the vicar comes in. Yeah, we can only, this is the vicar, we can only regard it as a special providence that you should chance to be here at this time, for in all of England, you are the one man we need. This is, yeah, about solving a murder. Uh, Back to Watson's perspective. I glared at the intrusive vicar with no very friendly eyes, but Holmes took up his pipe from his lips and sat up in his chair like an old hound who hears the view halloo. Funny that Watson's sitting there giving the death glare to the vicar, and Holmes is like a dog wagging his tail, being like, Watts, Watts, murder. <laughs> That's so good. Such a great visual. They're, they are so in on their dynamic at this point. They know their roles. <laughs> I do think that it's, I feel like a very common thing in adaptations is Watson will be presented as, you know, like the mother hen like you know wringing his hands being like the wet blanket being like oh we shouldn't take this case mr holmes i i don't like it you know and holmes is the one who like insists usually watson is head over heels for murder he loves crime he will get he will be in the middle of a surgery and walk away to investigated crime he is all in it's just that in the devil's foot, Holmes is recovering from exhaustion. And so he does, he's worried about Sherlock Holmes. But like, unless Holmes needs to not be doing crime to recover, Watson loves the case. He is mm. not turning away from a case. <laughs> yeah. Jumping ahead a little bit in the plot, the estranged brother is found dead as well with, with a lamp in front of him. Holmes goes into the village and purchases an identical lamp for some reason. I was sitting there thinking, like, if this was a modern adaptation, it would have been that he found it on eBay because it's so coincidental that he just found the exact lamp. He's trying to calculate the time of the motor based off of how low the candle had burned when he arrived. Gotcha. And how long that lamp takes to burn down to that length so that he can figure out when it was lit and thus when somebody arrived. Yeah. Gotcha. We don't get that much explanation in this version. He's just like... Watson, I think Same I'm lamp, yeah. just poison. And Watson's like, all right, I guess I'll stay for that. We'll do we'll do poison together. So during the during the scene when Holmes is intentionally and, and meaninglessly ingested poison. And uh, tripping. And tripping. <laughs> well, because the thing is, like, he already he followed Leon. He knows who the murderer is. 
I mean, like, I get that he needs to, like, confirm all the details, but, like, he probably could confront Leon and get pretty close and he'd confess, you know? That's how things seem to go in his line of work. So th- there's no yeah, reason Yeah, even if he only needs a confession and doesn't need to prove it in court. <laughs> right, right. Cause, because he ultimately he just lets Leon go anyway. He's like, right. well, he had a good reason, so, so it, it, it's okay with me. He just wants to be right. No, he's just a curious yeah. guy. Exactly. The only alternative to it being that poison is like the devil did it, and I I feel like they've ruled it out, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like Leon's the only man left standing. It's probably not the vicar. It's probably not the maid. So, I guess. Although the maid would have made sense because she was she was there. Yeah. Something that happens in the Sherlock Holmes stories all the time is like a crime will happen, and it'll be like I just don't know who could have come in. You know, no one was there except for the maid. So no one came into the house and no one could have done anything that affected people. (laughs) It's the maid or the like the butler, but they're always like, besides the staff, no one could have tampered with this. (laughs) I will say that because we've done this like beginning of this plot arc about Sherlock Holmes and his, his like death thing, then this endangering of his and Watts's life makes a little bit more sense. I feel like it's been established as him being leading towards a reckless pattern, but it does come out of nowhere in the in the short story. And I like that there's like some yes. weight to that. I like that he apologizes to Watson and says that it wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, during the sequence where he's tripping, and there's a lot of visuals. I like some of them I recognize or I can guess from like I know that's what Moriarty looks like. I'm guessing that footage of someone falling is from the final problem. There's a there's a yes. we see a boy at one point. Is that Holmes as a boy? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I don't know what was happening there. Right. There's all. also a lot of like, I'm covered in blood and there's blood coming from my hands and you know, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I'm I understand the impulse to do something, you know, artsy and interesting that's not in the book because in the book we don't see Sherlock Holmes' point of view for that and Sherlock Holmes is the main character. So I understand this is something that always kind of trips me up in adaptations because adaptations are always like, obviously Sherlock Holmes is our perspective character. And that's not, not at all how the books are. The yeah. books are Watson is the perspective character. Mm-hmm. And it's it's always fascinating to me how adaptations handle that because you you get stuff like useless Watson when they take the narration away from him and part of the things of like Watson being smart and competent in the Granada episodes are stuff that they add to give Watson, but it's also stuff that makes sense for him to observe because, you know, he'll observe something in the narration and not say it out loud, but like, he's still seeing it. He's still the one telling us mm-hmm. all of that is to say, I understand the appeal of let's go into Sherlock Holmes's subconscious for the sphere gas because Sherlock Holmes is such a big brain. I bet it's really interesting in there when he gets sphere gas. But ultimately, I feel like it just doesn't work as well or is as powerful to me as what happens in the book in Watson's narration where Watson experiences the effect of the fear gas, but what scares him more than anything else that this fear gas can summon and make him imagine is the reality of Sherlock Holmes in danger. And that snaps him out of it. And he saves Sherlock Holmes and he drags him out of there, saving both of their lives. And I think that that's actually much more compelling that he's in the throes of 
something so scary it could drive you to madness and he still saves Holmes. His affection for Holmes owes that. And then instead they're like, no, but what if we change the filter? To be colors, right. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) let's do some fun colors. (laughs) Let's do some eye bleeding. (laughs) I just want to race to the end of the episode now. After the murder is solved and Holmes has decided that he has the absolute moral authority to absolve the murderer and let him go back to Africa, they have this like, short conversation where Watson is like hey that was a weird thing that you did why did you do that and he starts the <laughs> sentence he goes I have never loved but um, and like quickly looks at Watson like, oh yeah I've never loved but yeah <laughs> and then it's like if I had loved I think maybe I'd be upset if uh, someone killed the person I loved um and also I don't have to solve crimes while I'm on holiday goodbye it's just a cute ending. Yeah. What's great about that is he has all those qualifiers there of like, I suppose if I hypothetically loved, for example, a woman, just naming concepts, then maybe I would have done that. But then, then there is a story published after this where somebody hurts Watson and Holmes says, you know, it's good. He says to the guy who hurt Watson, it's good for you that you didn't kill. Like, it's good for you that you missed because if you had killed Watson, you would not have left this room alive, which is so great because that has no qualifiers to it. It's not Mm. hypothetically, if I loved a woman, I might have taken revenge. It's if you hurt Watson, I will kill you. That's a definitive fact. And boy, those can really be just juxtaposed against each other right absolutely no question. yeah they're in love they're in love uh, what can it... we uh can we talk about i thought i knew my watson a phrase that drives me insane <laughs> oh uh, remember where that is when watson agrees to do the experiment with him <laughs> oh yeah yeah well it's a, oh you will see it through will you i thought i knew my watson that's it in the text and then they they expand that even more in the this the episode where you actually see Watson's response instead of just having it implied well Watson says Holmes that's insane and what and Holmes is like well you have to and Watson's like I'm gonna and Jeremy Betts smiles so big and says I thought I knew my Watson and it's a lot for me it's a lot to take (laughs) yeah he really says my Watson they're insane for that (laughs) what was it like for you to Re, uh, revisit this story and then to be seeing Redheaded League for the first time. Do you have any new feelings about this story or first feelings about Redheaded League? Yes. Yeah, so I do want to say with this story, I do still really like this adaptation of Devil's Foot and I really like the story of Devil's Foot. But I, as mentioned earlier, their depiction of the characters going mad made me a bit uncomfortable. And then I also, again, this is something that's comes from the book but I did not like their use of the African drums every time the devil's foot root came up something that comes up a lot in the Sherlock Holmes story is this fear of other cultures and stuff coming from other cultures into England and kind of being inherently dangerous this you know it comes up with you know the the speckled band the villain there is had lived in India and he brought stuff back from India and it happens in Sign of Four and it happens in just lots of different stories where something will come from another culture and kind of make England more dangerous or a character will live, an Englishman will live 
outside of England and then come back to England and he's now dangerous. So I don't, that's a common thing in the story. It's not, it's bad. It's objectively bad. Usually it doesn't bother me in Devil's Foot because I feel like the thing in Devil's Foot is that it is just, it's a root. And the thing that's scary about it is basically that Sterndell brings it back to Cornwall, not thinking anything about it. And he accidentally shows this weapon to the person who ends up killing the love of his life. And that it's very much a guy, a Cornish man who's never left Cornwall, who sees this random root and decides to use it for evil. In my mind, I don't sort it with the other, like, oh, dangerous exotic stuff, because it's just a MacGuffin. Like, it just needs to be an undetectable thing. But it really is just a plant until... It's someone decides to use it for evil and it the reason why it needs to come from another country is that it's really tragic that Sterndale brought something back and that he accidentally is the cause of the death of the lover's life. And so the fact that this episode decides to actually be like, oh no, the African root, ah, the African root, I don't care for that. And I know that that's a possible read on what's happening, but I feel like they didn't need to lean into it. So that was my main takeaway from revisiting Devil's Foot is I was like, ooh, that stuff, those are not great adaptation choices. But on the other hand, you do also get the scene where Edward Hardwick, while Holmes is talking to a client, he wraps a blanket around Holmes, which is so adorably domestic it's like you know your mom cleaning your face while you're in a work meeting it's great <laughs> yeah. that is really good i i really enjoyed it yeah like redheaded leak not much to say that i haven't already said <laughs> yeah it's so it's so lovely i i really enjoyed these adaptations like i said i, I mean i loved basil rathbone i love jeremy brett Moore. Mm-hmm. i love his homes i think it's gonna be hard to top that in future adaptations. So I love I love these a lot. I think that the Redhead League felt a little padded. I thought that they did a better job with Devil's Foot than my feelings about it on the page. So I'm excited to see what comes after this. I really enjoyed Jeremy Brett. I really enjoyed both Watsons for the first time. I enjoyed the Watsons. Mm-hmm. The bar was so low. The bar was so low, but I still enjoyed them. And yeah, it was it was really cool to I think have a pretty successful adaption of the devil's foot. I wish redheaded league didn't pad and add Moriarty, but you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. I can see how it makes sense as a choice for that season of television. Yeah, I guess. So we rate the adaptations we engage with on a five point spectrum, which is, Loyalty to source material, grade of mystery, Britishness, total enjoyment, and queer subtext or LGBTQ. <laughs> and we give each one a rating out of five, and we all try to agree on what that number is. So, starting at the beginning, loyalty to source material, I think this could be a five. What do you all think? I think it's the most loyal filmed adaptation (laughs) yes they certainly have made some changes but i feel like the spirit of the film adaptation is correct i feel like the characters feel in character i don't think it needs to be completely word by word textually faithful to be a five for me i would give it a five if the moriarty wasn't in redheaded league Mm -hmm. i think that unfortunately knocks it down a a peg 
peg. So I'm willing to go four. Okay. Does that feel fair to you? Well, yeah, I I would just say that like I'm I gave it a five graded on a code because absolutely they make some significant changes, but I think that something you will discover while watching is that no one no one does it more faithfully than this this is i think the upper limit on how faithful you can get adapting the stories into a serialized show i could go to four i could go to four i just wanted to say like we're not going to top four you know i think you convinced (laughs) me to stay at five really can you can you meet meet at a five i can meet at a five let's do five okay like 4.5 we could (laughs) a plus yeah Yeah, why not why not the systems have made me broken Next one is Grade of Mystery. How good are these two mysteries? I think they're both very interesting mysteries, for sure. I I think there's definitely like a campiness to Redheaded League and ridiculousness to Redheaded League, you know? I love Redheaded League. I love that it's just like very weird thing has happened to a man and somehow that leads to a bank robbery. (laughs) I think that's a really great short story mystery. I I think that's very emblematic of what I expect from Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, and Devil's Foot is very mysterious and kind of kind of spooky, I would say. I think it's one of the spooky ones, which I really enjoy. So I would go and say that even with the addition of Moriarty, I would go and say that this is a five Mm -hmm. for me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was I was ready uh, to go lower. So, you know, four, three and a half. I'm just saying, if, like, if you are a fan, if you are setting out to watch something in the mystery genre and you are a mystery genre head, because Holmes is so detached from the a- actual stakes of this, there's not a lot of intrigue in these yeah. mysteries. Yeah, I feel that. Which I, I think I... is a factor, but I do think that they are both pretty original crimes. The Devil's Foot, like, Maybe the first murder might be pedestrian, but then the killer getting got with the same weapon does elevate it, in my opinion. So I could go to a four. I feel like I also want to leave room for a like more mysterious mystery. I didn't feel like the like I was being pulled forward by trying to figure out what the mystery was. I mean, part of that is that I had read it first, but I yeah, I don't think there was a lot of sense of suspense or intrigue. That's a good word for it. Uh, yeah, and I could argue that because we saw a lot more than we should have. That's probably also why. You know, because we saw, you know, the beginning with the bank and then we saw the beginning with the smashing of the window and grabbing the devil's root. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I can go with four. Okay. Next is Britishness. How British is this? I think it's super British. This is just here to make the acronym work. How dare you? How, how British is this on a scale of one to five? I think it's pretty British. <laughs> Very British. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I can see that. There's a, there's all those Cockney noises at the beginning of Redheaded League. Redhead, Redheaded League feels more British somehow, maybe because they're in London. There is something extremely British about being like, we're going to Cornwall, the most distant location of all. <laughs> right, like that's that's so British. I'd say a five. Five, okay, five five is perfect. Yeah, Vicar. I mean, you don't get more British. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. And again, there's so many cockney noises. It's like we're in like an audition room for My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. Or Oliver. Uh, oh, yeah, the bank uh, the bank owner dressing like he's the fucking Monopoly man to sit in a vault. So yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Total enjoyment. I had a great time. Yeah, I mean, I had, I had a five, time. but I love that shit. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd give it a four or a five. Yeah. I think I'd give it a five. 
I think like the detractions really are mostly about like pacing. Like it felt yeah. times it felt like they were dragging out a story that could have been shorter. Oh yeah. And there, I think I would, I think I want to give it a four just for like a couple, just to have a couple critiques and to leave room for, for perfection. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I can go with four. And then finally, queer, yeah. queer subtext. This is a five. This is a five. This is so queer. This is so queer. Last mainline episode, we went six on Britishness. Could this be a six in queer that's, subtext? I, I mean, in my opinion, Jeremy Brett gets he gets a bonus point watson not having a wife gets a bonus point the fact that watson's just watching holmes have a very sensual violin experience gets a point the blanket wrapping gets a point when they do that little picnic where holmes lays on the blanket and they sit together holmes calling him john when he gets out of the thing i i'm getting it lots of points for queer subtext. Ian, I'd love to hear your what what your standout moments were for queer subtext. Oh was. god. <laughs> just all the little just all the little looks that they have towards each other. Definitely the the cigarette lighting was also very Yes. Yeah, they they like interact like they like each other and like that they like really are joyful about being in each other's presence mm-hmm. and are enjoying the game of like going through a mystery together. Uh, I think that I think easily a six for me. Yeah, this is a six. Seven. Seven? I say seven. <laughs> Fine. Let's seven. go. Yeah. I'd love to see that number go up through this se- season that you're doing. <laughs> okay, so out of a out of a possible twenty-five points, it got twenty-four and a half, which is the highest anything <laughs> scored so far. Even higher than Arthur Conan Doyle's two original novels, Hounded Baskervilles and Steady and Scarlet. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Where can people oh, yeah, find thank you? Thank you for letting me talk about this. So you can find me on Twitter or Blue Sky at Sarah Golub. Sarah has no H. Golub does. Figure that out. <laughs> and it's one word, S-A-R-A-G-H-A-L-E-B. And I tweet about or tweet or Axel Blue Sky, whatever, about Sherlock Holmes very frequently all the time you can listen to me talk about Sherlock Holmes also on the House of House podcast which has been reviewing the Sherlock Holmes short stories as House MD has been in stock mode promotion wise and I also talked about House MD on the however improbable podcast which you should check out if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan so that's what I meant. I mostly do mostly do Sherlock Holmes podcasting. You can also listen to the first two seasons of Arden Podcast if you like queer mysteries. I was a co-creator on that, and we're recording this in October, so I highly, highly suggest if you are a fan of spooky mysteries or spooky not hijinks wackiness, you check out my uh, Mythic Hunters, which is a 10 to 15 minute short form season of horror comedy audio drama. I have a great cat. I love talking about Sherlock Holmes. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> Pleasure to have you. Yes, thank I you tweet though. about my cat. That's why I mentioned it. If you yeah. follow me, you'll get to see my cat. So we'll link to your website and Twitter at sign in the description of the episode. Yes. We've been your Baker Street regulars. And you can join us next time. 